On this episode of Where the Money Is, two old friends reunite. Joel, World Cup's over. Nothing else to talk about, really. So I guess we got to talk about the dog days of sports. (laughs) That's right, the dog days of sports. One more day until baseball starts up, so I'm a little more excited about that. Yeah, if you have a team that's in it, which yours is right. This this is the first year since I was a little kid. (laughs) I actually have an interest uh, past the All Star break. uh, I noticed they both had their two representatives on the pitching mound, both like to cock their hats to the side. Hernandez and and, uh, Fernando Rodney, right? That's true. Hernandez is a little bit better. (laughs) Yeah, he's a little bit better. Probably why he started the game. Uh, To start off our show, we're going to go back to the headlines just like we always do. Pretty interesting one to start off, coming from the Moscow Times, something we haven't ever talked about here. Um, Putin promises to assist Cuba with offshore oil exploration. Basically, I'm looking at Crimea now as... Putin mm-hmm. holding out his left hand, showing us what's in the left hand while he puts the right hand under the table and hands Cuba $32 million, a billion dollars in debt forgiveness, $3.5 billion promised to help explore oil mm-hmm. off their north coast. This is a country that's only producing 55,000 barrels of oil a day. Not much. Not much at all, especially compared to 10.5 million barrels of oil a day from Russia. Uh, so a lot of experience coming here. U.S. is none too happy about this because obviously we still have the, the ban on uh, mm-hmm. Western companies dealing with Cuba. Yeah, 52-year embargo. And yeah. Cuba's still, still running. Still going on. Even Fidel's no longer uh, reigning down there. But Russia and Cuba back together. Uh, Rosneft is going to play a big role here. I don't know if it's going to be that much of a lift for Russia, but obviously Cuba stands to gain tremendously from this. Yeah, they do uh, stand to gain from it. And it's funny that uh, Putin went down there with uh, Igor Sechin, who's the basically runs Rosneft, their mm-hmm. biggest oil company. So obviously he went down there for some reasons. Right. What they're actually probably looking at long term is looking offshore Cuba, uh, just north of Cuba in the deep water area. There's been a number of companies and they're trying to go in and, and sample some wells to see mm-hmm. if there is oil there. Um, we had Petrobras go in there not too long ago. Russia has actually had some companies over there the last few years. Nobody's found anything yet, but that they're probably saying, you know, we'll keep this relationship here yep. just in case. However, the biggest thing that you're looking at is U.S., the United States keeps tightening the sanctions on Putin. So what is yeah. he going to do? He's going to go over to Cuba where he had friendly relations and saying, you know, I'm in your backyard now. Right. I'm, 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 I'm trying to put some deals together with somebody that you've had this embargo on for so long. So I think it's just more politicking than actually trying to get Rosneft into that oil field because that's, that's just pittance, yeah, pittance it's a, for them. It's a chess match right now, and especially if you look at them reopening a Soviet-era spy base in Cuba at mm-hmm. the same time. So definitely just trying to encroach in the Western Hemisphere a little bit. But that's for an entire different, different show. Uh, so we'll leave the spy base to it, but I agree. I don't know if it's going to move the needle for either one. But oh, absolutely it's an interesting topic to follow. A lot of people didn't see that because the news of Crimea was so large. But now you see Russia, maybe yeah, Crimea it, wasn't their ultimate goal. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, even just yesterday, the United States came out with more sanctions on Russia. Mm-hmm. Before, it was just saying we, nobody can do business with Putin or anybody in his inner circle, including uh, Igor Sechin. Mm-hmm. But now they're actually saying if you're in a United States bank or anybody that can loan um, any of the companies in Russia money, yep. you can't do it if the maturity date's longer than 90 days. Again, this really doesn't have any teeth. It's just a lot of bark. Yeah. Um, you know, they even said ExxonMobil has has even mentioned saying this really doesn't affect our business with Rosneft. We're still going ahead with what we're doing. So, like you, like we said, really, there's nothing uh, really biting in here. As big as a company as Exxon is, they probably know more than anybody about what's going on. So, if they're not worried, chances are we shouldn't be either. But something that we can follow. Uh, turning to this 
domestic oil patches. Mm-hmm. We look at Wall Street Journal. Shared shareholders should smooth. Shared shareholders should smooth Kodiak widen combo. Wall Street Journal is trying to trip us up. Um, interesting deal here out of the Bakken, Williston Basin. Uh, two big companies now becoming the biggest, taking over from Continental up there in the Bakken. Uh, what was it, a $3.8 billion in stock? And, and, then, so, and then some, they assumed some debt some of $2.2 debt. billion, dollars, so about $6 billion overall yeah, looked uh, at it. For, for Kodiak. I like it. I mean, this is a deal, 60% overlap in shareholders. I thought was very interesting. Wondering if it's a bet on these two companies that the shareholders are so aligned, or if it's, I'm thinking it's just a bet on the Bakken and Williston Basin in general. Um, only 39 to 42,000 barrels a day for 2014, Kodiak's expecting. But if you look at their glide path, starting at just 3.9 thousand barrels a day in 2011, 10x with what they're expecting this year from just three years ago. So mm-hmm. tons of growth. You see them only predicting uh, flat wells being drilled this year, about 100, but well costs continue to fall, and that's very important for all oil and gas drillers, but the Bakken has really seen tremendous improvement there, catching up to some of the well prices down in Texas. I think Whiting really wanted to add more of that oil, and Kodiak Mm -hmm. is one of the better pure play uh, Bakken producers that has been out there. So, you know, I think they got a pretty decent deal. If they were looking at Bakken assets probably three years ago, uh, I think they would have been paying a little bit more than Mm -hmm. they actually did. You know, they actually paid, if you look at the last 60 days of what Kodiak shares were paying or for trading at, it was only about a 5% premium. So usually when you're seeing bigger companies come in and purchase, there is a lot uh, larger of a premium. What I also am curious, you know, we've been looking at and following Kodiak for so long, but who's next? Who's one of these? The next companies that could be sold. And there's two companies that I'm looking at. Obviously, people are not wanting to go out and buy natural gas assets unless they're very cheap. So if you look at oil producers, the first one that comes up is Penn Virginia. George Soros has been increasing his position in this company, and he's been saying, you know, I actually want to sell this company. They have over 100,000 acres in the Eagleford, another strong oil play. And if you look at the actual assets that they have there, it's in the Gonzales and the Baca counties. Those are oil-heavy counties that actually have some of the lowest break-even prices. So I think that could be a company that, again, could be put up for sale. The other one I'm looking at is Halcon Resources, another company that we talk about often. Floyd Wilson, he's... He's told everybody he's building these companies to sell them to bigger players. Successfully in the past, why not now? He's done it, yeah. I mean, he's sold back when natural gas was the big play. He sold uh, companies he started to Chesapeake Energy. PetroHawk was the the big oil play he sold uh, three years ago, 2010, 2011. Uh, He sold that to BHP Pilton for $12 billion. So, you know, he's built up nice assets in, in Halcon Resources. He's got Bakken assets, Eagleford, and then the Tuscaloosa Marine Shell is looking like a real winner. So, you know, this is another company that I think could be up on the uh, on the block. Interesting to follow. I mean, the uh, assets are the key here, and both of those companies are really holding on to great ones. Activist shareholder in one, owner with a lot of interest in the other. So, and, yeah, owner I mean, founder in the second one. So, and he's been saying he wants to sell this agreed. company. He's, he's building it to sell about it. it. Kind of like Kodiak is what they're saying was built to sell. So, mm-hmm. Falcon is. I could see it hitting the market very soon. Uh, on to Canada now. Looking at, we talked about last week. We talked about states benefiting from high GDP growth because of oil production and natural mm-hmm. gas production. Canada is in the same boat. Alberta, especially. So we look at the Financial Post. Jeff Immelt of GE fame mm-hmm. is just the American Canada needs to clean up its oil sands. That's always been the tag on the oil sands. It's dirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't want to trans- transport it. Uh, you know, mining it is different from fracking in the United States and uh, some fracking up in Canada. So it's a completely different process. It's dirtier to refine because it isn't 
it isn't the light suite that you're seeing come out of yeah. U.S. And sales. it's an eyesore, too. Yeah, if you look, if you look at the pictures. Pits. Oh, my gosh, it's terrible to look at. But remote areas, GE coming in, spending a ton of money, billions and billions and billions to get into energy. Oil sands obviously is a huge market. You're looking at uh, Alberta alone growing at 3.5% this year versus 2.1% expected for all of Canada. Unemployment's only 4.6% to 7.1% for Canada. Very similar to what we talked about with Texas, North Dakota, and West Virginia. And you're looking at $207 billion going to be spent in the oil sands expectedly from 2013 to 2022. And they say that that translates $1 into $8 of economic effect. So that's an wow. 8x multiplier. $1.6 trillion could, could affect Canada very, very, uh, very much, uh, especially because they only think, make like $250 billion a year on the federal revenue side. So right there, mm-hmm. eight times federal revenue. Um, Emelt said, we in terms of the oil sands need to peg a greenhouse gas target that would make us competitive with any other fuel source in the world. I think that more or less takes it off the table as an excuse. I don't, I don't doubt GE can come in there and make waves, but he's going to need the bigger players mm-hmm. in the oil sands to step up and, and, and join hands with him as well. Yeah, I mean, he's wanting, you know, he's saying if, if people that are for the Keystone XL, if you want the oil, you're going to have to clean up your act up yeah. up in the oil sands. And, you know, I think he's going about it the right way. When people started uh, fracking and horizontally drilling, there was some issues, environmental issues that people had to take care of, making sure that there's best practices. So what Immolt's really offering here is he, he wants an open source project where all the companies come together, they start sharing best practices, they start sharing their intellectual properties and mm-hmm. patents. So basically they're saying, let's all work together, make sure we're keeping each other accountable to make sure that when we are producing, we're doing so in an environmentally friendly way or yep. as much as you can. And that's really what I think um, has helped grow the shell business in North America is all these companies started looking at some of the issues with you know, wastewater treatment and saying, you know, if we actually want to tap all these assets, we have to start making sure that we're doing it the right way. And a lot of companies have been moving in that direction. And that's why, you know, companies like Devon Energy are always at the top of the list for environmentally friendly companies because they're spending money that they don't necessarily have to, but they're making best practices. And that's what Immolt's trying to do with the oil sands. And, you know, he's, he's somebody that has connections with Wall Street, yeah. Silicon Valley. He's been around, uh, you know, running one of the biggest companies in the world for a long time. Uh, he's, the, I think, one of the right people to do it. Also a company that's growing into the oil business. Right. So he's, he, I think he's... You know, in, in that position where he has little hands in everything so he can actually maybe get something done there. A con- company built on innovation is obviously someone that you want to be carrying the torch for something like this. Mm-hmm. So my money is on GE, and, and if other companies get on board, they're probably going to ride the coattails. Absolutely. I mean, it's, the oil sands is one of the biggest actual um, res- reserves or resources, mm-hmm. oil resources in the world left. So there's so much there. This is something that is important, so something Agreed. to follow. Um, I think it's time to move to the Headlines stock quiz. Headlines are over, yeah. Headlines are done. Stock quiz. we got some good stuff today, okay. hopefully. Yeah. Uh, my first question I got for you is, looking at shell oil, tight oil recovery, uh, what are the actual recover rates in t- tight oil? What that means is when you actually go and drill, how much oil are you extracting and how much are you still leaving in the ground? Mm-hmm. So of all the oil in place, are we getting 3% of the oil, 5% of the oil, 10% of the oil, or 13% of the oil when we're fracking a shell-type formation? Well, just looking at your four possible answers, pretty disheartening since the highest is only 13%. Yep. But that being said, that means that there's a lot of innovation left to extract that other 87%. Uh, methods like CO2 injection are helping. Mm-hmm. Uh, enhanced oil recovery is what we, we call that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm going to go with 10%. 10%. C. 
Ten percent. It's actually five percent. Oh We're my only god! Getting 5% I just gave us double tight, the benefit of tight uh, shell oil. Five percent, and on what top of that, it? the decline rate. So how fast the yeah. oil actually is declining is about fifty percent a year. So you know, if you look at that, that's not much. We're leaving a lot in place. If you look at traditional drilling, that's not uh, fracking and horizontally drilling. It's about reverse. You're getting, mm-hmm. you know, thirty, forty, up to fifty percent of recovery of oil recovery with a 5% decline rate. So you can see, you know, the old oil uh, was cheaper and, and it had longer decline rates. So the new type of oil you have to keep drilling. Uh, there's a lot there. And I said, like you mentioned, there's a lot of innovation that could yeah. happen. There's 95% of the oil still sitting in those, just hanging out in those areas. Offers. So uh, like you mentioned, there's primary drilling, there's the uh, secondary, which is water flood, and then mm-hmm. the CO2 tertiary uh, oil recovery, which is basically just pressuring water or pressuring the oil to the wellhead. Yeah. So there's a lot of innovation, I think, that could be coming into this area that could produce a lot more oil. And because only 5% is coming out and the decline rates are so high, companies have to drill, drill, drill. So services companies might be somewhere that investors want to look at if uh, yeah. fracking. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's why Halliburton, who's one of the best service providers in the United States yeah. in the fracking business, is up what, 60% over the last two years or so? Yeah, after, the, after them and their competitors really took a hit in 2010, 11, 12, they've all roared back quite nicely due to fracking and the amount of drilling that needs to be done. So, they, But those are also the companies that are doing some of the innovating on mm-hmm. the enhanced oil recovery side. So they're, they're doing their part to not force these companies to keep drilling like that. It just so, there's so much growth that yep. can happen in this industry. Yeah, Slumberjay just made a deal with Precision Drilling yesterday. There. Yeah, yesterday. So both stocks responded quite nicely to that. So continue to focus on that. My question for you, uh, not necessarily on energy production, but mm-hmm. we've seen the Gulf of Mexico thrive since the, since the, the spill down there with Transocean and BP. Uh, and I'm talking about what year had the most hurricanes. Uh, in the last decade, we've got 2010, 2011, 2005 and 2004, um, basically prompting this question because um, last year was a multi-decade low in uh, major hurricanes, and by major I mean winds of 110 miles per hour or more, Um, and with all the activity down there, major hurricanes could now be that much more of a disruptive force, so what do you think the last... I guess decade has shown us. So the most hurricanes? The most major hurricanes. Uh, Oh, I'm thinking since 2005 was Katrina, right? So it's probably, usually when there's that big one, there's not as many. I'm going to go with 2010 as the most, most hurricanes. Most major hurricanes. That's number two. Number one was 2004. Ah. So yeah, uh, they cleared the path for Katrina, showed her how to, show her how to get the job done, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, last year, like I mentioned, record low for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And this year is expected to be well below the average as well. So Maybe uh, maybe God is on our side with all that drilling going on down. Yeah, there. I mean, hopefully. I mean, when uh, Sandy hit, you saw companies like Phillips sixty six with their huge refineries. Not used to it coast. on the East Coast. Yeah, definitely. yeah they they, they, didn't, they weren't ready for it, yeah. and they had operations that were out for a week. There's a lot of companies that missed earnings. I mm-hmm. mean, you you're out of business for a week. You have to pull your wells or actually stop producing oil if you're out in the actual Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. or if you're in a refiner. I mean, you're looking at you know, anywhere between 300 to 500 barrels of oil a day that's coming through that yep. refiner. That's a lot of money that's being left out there, and it makes companies miss earnings. So if you see a hurricane and you see a company you really like and they miss earnings and the stock market overreacts, you know, always a good time to maybe jump Definitely in. Definitely a nice little entry point. Uh, you talked about offshore especially. It's hard to get all those guys off the rig. you got to make multiple shuttles back and forth, either by ship or by helicopter. Mm-hmm. A very expensive process. 
Um, I guess now it's time to answer a foolish question. Yeah, we got to ask a fool. Right. And yeah. yeah, any questions that anybody has, yeah. just send them our way. Them over. Energy at fool.com, or you can hit us on Twitter at TMF Energy. Uh, ask any questions you have. We, we like them all. We've got one today. What is it? So today's question is from Tom H. It's what's the outlook for clean energy fuels? Uh, will it ever reach that $20 range? I mean, that's, that's a double from today's price. It's double. That's that's quite uh, quite large. Um, I like the company. I don't double in price. I don't I don't want to estimate when or how, but I think that you know it's got the wherewithal. It's got the financial backing. It's got tailwinds in, dust, in the industry that could prompt it to definitely increase from its current price. Doubling is hard to predict, and I don't want to put my name behind saying that it will. Mm-hmm. I do like its prospects to be a, an investing option for people that want to get into clean yeah. energy. Um, not, it's not the stock, but the actual movement of clean energy. So um, it's obviously making headway with uh, long-haul trucking mm-hmm. and fleet vehicles. I don't think it's going to play a part in personal vehicles. No, um, not at all. And then if it tries to get in the locomotive game, I talked to uh, Canadian National Rail last week. They said that that's going to be a long, drawn-out process. It took them like 30 to 40 years to convert from coal to diesel. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be probably another 10, 20 years before they're converting, uh, if natural gas is the future for them uh, and the industry. That's going to mm-hmm. take a while, but they're already make, clean energy fuels already making inroads with UPS and long-haul trucking. That's the thing. I think investors nowadays are looking at a company like this, and they want to see stock appreciation right yeah. away. And something like this is just going to take time. And I think where, where the company's valued right now, it's showing that they do have a good market share in the CNG, which is the compressed natural gas market. It's about a 3 to $4 billion or billion gallon a year business. Um, you know, and that's a lot of the local fleets that's your dump trucks, that's your mm-hmm. the, um, the actual, some of the bigger vans. And, Airports and things and like buses that. They that build their own around. fueling stations. That clean energy fuels mm. comes in contracts. Builds so, so I think that's where they're at today. If they need to get to that next step, like you mentioned, getting into a new business, and I think the LNG, the liquefied natural gas for long, um, heavy duty, long term or long distance trucking, will actually get them there eventually if they actually get the adoption rate. Right now, you're looking at pricing. If you look at how cheap it is to actually use LNG compared to diesel. You're seeing some of these trucks, the Class 8 trucks, that could be paid off in two to three years if you're driving about 75,000 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if natural gas prices continue to stay low and all the indications are that that's going to yeah, be I the case, you're just going to have to slowly let these trucks, as they come to the end of their, their lifespan um, and people have to buy new trucks, they will start looking into the LNG type of trucking. So it's just that long-term game. You have to let things expire. It's just like coal plants. You have to let them expire before you can start building the natural gas plants. So you'll start seeing some adoption. Um, if you can actually get into the, the LNG heavy-duty market, that's you know 25 billion gallons a year uh, market. So they, if they can get market share in there, I think you could see that $20 range. But like you said, it's, it's, you don't know exactly when it's going to be. It's going to be long-term. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be anything recent. You're seeing indications that people really want it and are moving that way with some of their joint ventures. But as far as when? They're working with the biggest companies in the business uh, as far as trucking. Uh, Flying J has a great infrastructure set up already. Mm-hmm. That's who they're moving in with for the, the major routes, uh, I-70, I-40, 95, all the major highways and byways. But there's just so much out there that needs to take place before they can double. So I think that they will. I'm just not going to put a, a time frame on that. Yeah, it's, it's just a long-term play. Yep. On to the Twitters. That was our mailbag question. Now we turn to Twitter mm-hmm. to see some tweets that maybe interested us. Hopefully they interest you as well. Um, our first one comes from 
OGFJ online or OGJ online oil and gas journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, EIA conference was here in DC on Monday and Tuesday, yep. and we have an EIA conference speakers warn of U.S. light crude oils day of reckoning. Sounds a bit ominous. Sounds like we're running yeah, out. Day of reckoning. Yeah. Sounds, when it, I first read the tweet, I thought we were running out. That's, yeah. That was my first thought. Same here. I mean, when I saw that, I was like, is somebody coming out uh, looking at some of the projections yeah. and saying, we don't have as much oil as we're looking at? Um, we're, as we're thinking, mm-hmm. we're going to run out of production. The decline rates are too fast. Uh, that wasn't but the case, that's though. not the case. Yep. What they're saying is, we are the day of reckoning is having too much oil. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's a little bit, uh, a little ominous, but they're basically saying if we have so much light, sweet crude being produced, it might stymie production because we don't have the refining capacity mm-hmm. uh, to actually refine it all and ship it around. Yeah, the um, export bugs are loving to hear this right now. If, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, I, it, sound, it sounded like a lot of people at the conference were all for oil exports. There's a lot of people talking about that, wanting mm-hmm. to move that way. And uh, John Amers from Turner Mason & Co., he was the person that gave this speech. And uh, Daniel Jurgen, who's you know, um, a big author of The Prize and the Quest, mm-hmm. uh, p- pretty big authority in the oil and gas field, uh, also backed this, saying that, you know, we're going to have to start looking at oil production. We're going to hit that wall sometime soon. Yep. Uh, you know, we've talked about a lot about actual oil oil exportations. We're not really for that. Gets me I mean, a little fired up. I, I think more the ultra-light, like sweet crude, yeah, you might be able to move some of that condensate around. And um, Enterprise Product Partners is, is one of the two companies yep. that um, can start exporting that. And they put another uh, agreement together this week to export a little bit more of it. However, when you're looking at how much they're moving, it's very little. I, I just don't see this as a day of reckoning mm-hmm. or something to really worry about. We're still importing so much oil. Over 7 million barrels a day. And, and, and they're saying basically if we have too much, it's going to lower the price. People are going to, it's going to be less than the break-even point for producers. But refiners are going to like that lower price, yep. and they're going to start moving away from heavy oil refining and start actually refining lighter stuff. They'll start uh, overhauling some of their refiners. So I, I don't see that as an, a, a, an issue. I mean, if there's an economic incentive for a business, they're going to take it. Yeah. So I agree. I think the people that are for it are the investors in these companies. They're the owners of these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think you need to t- step, take a step back, separate your inner investor from your inner rational human being, and say, why do we want to make this possible to ramp up production as quickly as possible to its peak just to reach the downturn in the other side of the hill? Mm-hmm. Why not prolong that climb, keep producing more oil steadily, mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll have that advantage for the, for the long haul, rather than the next five years, we might have it for the next 20 years. Uh, I want everyone to benefit from our oil production. Mm-hmm. Investors will still benefit. They might just not benefit as quickly. They're just trying to bring those cash flows more forward so they're not discounted out as many years. Um, so the companies are more valued highly now rather than later. Yeah, I mean, they just want to turn on the rigs and try That's to it. drill as much as possible. So, um, as an investor in some of these companies, sure, I'm for it. But as a, as a citizen of the United States hoping for energy security... Uh, uh, whatever. I don't want to export oil. Yeah. I mean, talking about energy security, let's uh, go to the next The tweet. next tweet. I think that uh, ties in well, and it's actually yes. from uh, Jennifer DeLuey. Uh The tweet is, those who have energy have the power. We're seeing this play out real time with Russia. Yep. Uh, she basically, that was a tweet from a uh, talk at the EIA conference. Uh, basically, it's from uh, Fred Upton. He's a Republican uh, House Energy and Commerce chairman. And basically, he probably knows his stuff. Yeah, I mean, he, his, his, his policy is basically looking at five pillars of changing America, the f- five pillars that he 
is campaigning on is modernizing the infrastructure. Yes, we need that. Diversify electrical generation, all the above theory that Uh, people throw around. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Manufacturing renaissance. Yeah, everybody wants jobs back onshore. And then the last two, and I think what this plays out to this tweet, is the energy efficiency and innovation, and then also energy diplomacy saying we can start using the huge amount of natural gas that we have, the oil production, and start actually maybe uh, um, sharing it with, say, Europe for mm-hmm. LNG and trying to strong-arm Russia. Uh, I think that's kind of where the, 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 that tweet was going. So the Cold War debate, this is the light sweet, light sweet war we're getting into here. Yeah, so he, he basically is talking about, should we start exporting more LNG? Um, you know, we have a lot that's already approved, but he wants more and more out mm-hmm. there so we can say, you know, we'll start moving LNG to a lot of these countries, and Russia will have to start finding new buyers and, you know, yeah, they're going to find new buyers like they did with China. But yeah, that's we're not a gonna, huge buyer. Yeah, four hundred billion dollar deal. Mm-hmm. But we're not My going. God. To, we're not going to export enough LNG to to cut Russia out. No, of I doubt mix. it. So, um, I mean, look at them. It's not possible. They have so many reserves, and everyone needs it. So, and and it's a pipeline. I mean, they have the pipelines yep. that go there. Um, LNG. If you're shipping it by, you know, liquefying it and then actually having to put it on a, a boat and ship it, it's a lot more expensive. So yeah, I mean, if you have energy, you're going to have the power, but you know, the United States really doesn't have an energy policy, so I, I, I just don't know. This is a new game that we're playing. I mean, not many countries have ever used oil and gas as their lever to mm-hmm. have influence internationally, like, like has been going on lately, Russia leading the charge. Talking about that deal, just to take a quick step back on it, the pipeline that they're going to build over the next few years is going to be the largest construction project in world history from Russia to China. It's like $70 billion wow. to build this pipeline. Um, and they're trading oil for it. They're not trading, typically the U.S. dollar is the currency, called the petrocurrency for uh, oil and gas sales. But they're just bartering with, going back and forth with uh, oil and natural gas. So they're kind of taking us completely out of the picture. People always talk about us being the reserve currency of the world. I read an article from the Telegraph in, U- in the U.K. saying, if deals like this continue, which have happened between China and Brazil already, we could lose influence as a, cur- as a global currency um, they say that's not likely in the next five to ten years. But if major deals like four hundred billion dollar deals like this don't involve a U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. we could lose influence that way. Not just on the energy side of things, but on the global currency side of things as well. So something for people to consider if you want to dive into the economics of mm-hmm. all of this as well. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I think we're still going to be a player because yeah. we're going to be having the technology and we're going to be having the Western companies and United States companies going and helping Russia produce yeah. a lot of this natural gas and oil. You know, their next big play is offshore North Sea. Very dangerous. They can't do it themselves. They yep. still need ExxonMobil's expertise. And we'll see if that even works. Yeah, exactly. That might not even work. And they're looking towards the Arctic as a lot of the ice caps start receding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of oil up there, but they're going to need a lot more help. So it's it's going to be a global game. Uh, but, you know, We've yeah, seen energy. China get, get angry in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Russia's threatened Canada and the Arctic. So... Everyone's clamoring for it. Yeah. I mean, Who's going to get it? Fred, that's what he's saying. Is, what Fred's uh, saying. Good old Fred. Um, energy. What's his, his Twitter? If you want to follow him, at Rep Fred Upton. There you go. If you, if you want to look at this energy from the, con- the congressional hill side of things, yeah, I follow mean, that guy. Just one more person trying to say we have an energy policy, yeah. which we don't. Which we don't. Well, Maybe one day. One day, hopefully. If not, we're just going to run out of it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not it's, in our lifetime. It's it's really an economic policy, and I don't think anybody's really focused on really a true energy policy or a national security mm-hmm. issue. It's somewhere in, in between there, but it's not defined yet. Haven't yet. One day we will. That's it for today's show, I think. That's that's it. At TMF Energy, uh, at energyatfool.com. Energyatfool.com for, for mail. Yeah, send the questions. Send lots of them. Lots we'll of answer. them. We can do a whole show of questions if we you could, fill it. We could do a whole week of questions. A whole week of questions. Anything you want, we got your back. All right, that's it. Joel and Taylor, full on.